0: Hi, this is Wang Zhenyu, along with my co-host, Ken Walcox, welcoming you to another episode of China 411. Today, we welcome our guest, Yabo Ling, who is a partner at Sidley Austin, to talk about the topic of cross-border legal dynamics. Welcome, Yabo. Thank you, China. Great. So, love to hear a little bit about your background.
1: So again, my name is uh, Yavalan, and uh, I have been a partner at Sydney Austin here in Palo Alto. Uh, I do cross-border uh, M&A work, and I also handle uh, compliance, corporate governance, uh, etc. And uh, my firm, because it is a very global firm, so I get to sometimes uh, feel like I, I'm sitting at the front seat, uh, you know, looking at the cross-border dynamics. Uh, So that's a very good title for the show. So the legal dynamic uh, in a cross-border setting between China and the United States. So uh, I get to observe uh, the business dynamic, uh, legal dynamic, political dynamic, and things that people think differently uh, between China and the U.S uh... when they try to come together to solve problems you know we're lawyers we try to solve problems
2: yeah, well, how long have you been with it
1: so i've been with Silly for almost uh, seven years now um... where were you before that uh... i was with a law firm called sun and sign in Rosenthal. uh... and i was uh... before that I was in kansas city for kansas two city yes oh my goodness why kansas city uh, Long story, Ken, uh, I don't know how long this program, I heard it's like uh, (laughs) uh, for a limited duration, but uh, I will make it short for you. Uh, I went to Washington University in St. Louis uh, for law school. Oh, good place. uh, Thank you. I I love St. Louis. And then uh, Kansas City obviously is a cross-state rival for, you know, uh, uh, St. Louis and the second largest city in Missouri. So, I got an internship uh, at a law firm called Blackwell Sanders, uh, a great law firm. Uh, and I worked there for, um, uh, I think, eight years. Wow. Uh, so, I raised my family there, and, and then I moved to Jose in Kansas City as well. And then, Jose opened up a Silicon Valley office at the time, and a client, a VC client, in fact, invited me to uh, come to Silicon Valley. Office, but uh, I did not know that uh, you know the housing price would be almost like ten times more expensive uh, than <laughs> Kansas City, <laughs> yeah. and I obviously had to take you know the California bar uh, exam again because uh, there was no reciprocity. Um,
0: yeah. uh, so you were a lawyer in China, or you studied to become a lawyer in China. Yes. So, what was, what's the process like of becoming a lawyer in China versus in the US? Well, hold on,
2: what university in China did you study law?
1: At? I, uh, well, uh, again, another long story. Uh, anything about me is pretty long. Uh. Uh, so, 30, 30 I went, seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I went to Fudan University. Are you from Shanghai? Shanghai. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so I'm okay. um, almost uh, your Laoxiang. Yeah, uh, yeah. I know that you lived in Shanghai for a while as well. And part so, you the, grew up in Shanghai. Actually. No, I grew up in Hainan in Hainan, uh, oh yeah, that's which right, is yeah, southern, okay, you know, a little island like Hawaii, almost. It's not a little island, it's a pretty big <laughs> island, uh, so it's bigger than Hawaii, obviously. So I went to Fudan from 85 to 89, and then I worked for two years at Bank of China.
0: Doing well, what was it like studying to become a lawyer?
1: Yeah, so in China there are two ways to become a lawyer. So you go to law school directly uh, at the undergraduate level. Uh, or you, you know, just pick a major like Chinese literature, which was my case, uh, and then you study uh, the Master of Law degree program, uh, which I did. So I worked for Bank of China and then I uh, went to Sun yat University in mm. Guangzhou for my LLM or mm. Master of Law
0: Degree. So it's a, it's a one-year program versus three years JD so program? Yeah. Or? So uh,
1: in China, the undergraduate program in law is called LLB. It's a four-year mm-hmm. program. Mm-hmm. It's like Germany, for example, it's mm-hmm. a you know, continental law system. Uh, in the U.S., yes, it's a three-year program, uh, JD program. Got it, got, got it. Year. And Sun Yat-sen was how long for you then? So, I was at Sanya Sen uh, for two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I went back to Sanya Sen again uh, after I had come to the United States to do my so called dissertation defense to get um, my master's degree. Yeah. So, theoretically, I need to spend three years at Sanya Sen University on campus. But because I had to leave China for my uh, US legal education before the completion of the three year program, so, University and my professors were kind enough to allow me to come back uh, to do my dissertation and I still got my degree.
0: Mm. So, what's yeah. the process like becoming a lawyer? Is it just like in the U.S. or is it very different?
1: So, uh, that's a very good question, another very good question. So, uh, China did not really have the bar exam system until almost, I wanted to say 1987 or 89. Uh, So before that, there was no examination system. Uh, I took the bar exam in China in 1992. So you know, still like maybe year four Mm -hmm. uh, of the resumption of the bar exam in China. Uh, It was a pretty tough exam. Uh, So you took the bar exam uh, and the percentage of passing uh, was still pretty low at the time. I don't know the passing rate at this point and people said that it's only like less than 10% but I felt like it was a little bit easier, you know, when I took it. Uh, And so you took the bar exam, but then you need to practice law in a Chinese law firm in order to have your so-called practice license. Mm -hmm. Uh, So because I only passed the bar exam, I registered my uh, license within uh, the Ssangyuan University Law Clinic. Uh, So I got the practice license but I only got to review a few contracts, did not really practice full-time. So
2: what's what's the major difference at a high level between uh, Chinese legal system and American legal system? You know, in, in America, when we talk about China, we say that uh, we have a uh, rule of law and China doesn't. <coughs> uh, how true is that, really? That you, I, I, it's impossible for me to believe that China doesn't have rule of law, if, because otherwise how could they have
1: lawyers in law schools? So give us a sense of the big differences. Thank you, Ken. So uh, we all know that without law, without rule, the society cannot function, right? And that's why, frankly, during the Cultural Revolution in China, everything was ca- so chaotic, mm. right? There was no real court system. Everything was almost like decided by the so-called committee uh, instead of the court, uh, the court might be just a function of you know carrying out whatever the committee has already decided. Uh, and it was very chaotic and it was a very um, uh, I would say it's a lost time in Chinese uh, uh, history from 1966 to 1976. So China did not really develop uh, or resume the development of Uh, the legal system until the Cultural Revolution. You know, I would say even a few years after the Cultural Revolution, things were still very, very, very slow. Mm. Uh, The real development probably did not really get started until maybe 1980. Uh, So it's still a very short history of developing a rule of law system in China. The Chinese leadership has been extremely clear. in the last few decades the rule of law is fundamentally beneficial to China. Mm-hmm. And, and China must develop a very good rule of law system. Uh, and I think that's why businesses are functioning uh, the way they are functioning today in China, that is uh, more dynamic, uh, more rule-based. Uh, Now, uh, does China still have room to improve? Yes, China has tremendous uh, room to improve. But from a historical perspective, uh, China has made huge progress.
0: Perceptions on the rule of law is very different in both countries. Can you give some specific examples? That sounds very interesting.
1: Yeah, so uh, from a U.S. perspective, right? you know, uh, if... Uh, you know, the president uh, does something wrong, for example, uh, a district court uh, in the U.S. can make fair independent judgment on what the U.S. president should be subject to. Uh, and then from a Chinese perspective, uh, if, uh, you know, the president of China, you know, should be subject to some sort of uh, court uh, action uh, you know, in his uh, official capacity, has nothing to do with crime or anything else, but just official executive order, you know, or rule uh, that the president might have signed. Uh, you know, people have a different view in China, right? So uh, the people would be extremely reluctant, you know, through the court system, to challenge uh, what the administrative arm, you know, has been doing. Uh, you know, China does have administrative law system, but I think uh, you know people generally don't uh, challenge um, openly their leader openly in court. For example, so you're, a you're saying
0: more the independence of the judiciary arm.
1: Yeah. So uh, in the U.S., I use yeah exactly. I think th- I think you you would say so. Now China has try has been trying to develop a very independent judicial system. But then, you know, it is limited by the confines of its political system. Uh, I'm not saying that this system is better or worse. I'm just saying that uh, you know, we need to bridge the gap uh, and we need to try to foster uh, you know, and try to have some mutual understanding, for example, uh, instead of you know trying to rush to judgment uh, at any particular you know case,
2: so would that be the biggest difference between the Chinese legal system and the American legal system that our judiciary is more independent of the other branches of government?
1: Uh, I would say uh, again, you know, you have to put that in a different context, mm-hmm. right? But but there are many other things that can differentiate the two systems. You know, in the U.S., you have the common law you know, uh, tradition, uh, cases have binding effect, you know, for similarly situated situations uh, mm-hmm. or cases, you know, in the future. Uh, but in China, case law is not binding, you know, it's completely by uh, statute mm-hmm. and by code. So I
2: have a question because there's another difference that I think I've observed, and I want to know if if uh, what you have to say about that, and that is if you're... Um, So in in Shanghai, I always had a driver because I I didn't have a driver's license in China. And I I didn't want to get one because the driving is different. So if you're sitting in the back seat and your driver is uh, taking you uh, across town and there's an accident, bam, he hits somebody. Uh, In China, my experience is that uh, the other driver stops, the two drivers get out, they get in an argument, then a policeman arrives. And the policeman can make a decision on the spot, like almost like he was uh, the judge as well as the policeman. And everything gets settled, and then everybody goes home, and there's no, nothing afterwards. Right. And that's, that's a little different here, because when we hit each other, then there are always proceedings afterwards. The insurance companies get involved. In some cases, there's even a, a form of a <coughs> trial. If if charges are brought, is 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 that a correct observation, or am I misunderstanding something?
1: I, I think I think you, you, you have a very uh, good observation. Uh, I you know I have uh, you know seen people arguing you know on the roadside with the police uh, you know standing by trying to take notes. Uh, but 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 frankly, I think that uh, come from sort of the cultural
0: preference. Uh, to settle things quickly. Yeah, I think the police acts more as a mediator mm-hmm. versus a judge in that case. Right. That, that's my that's been my experience. The other
2: thing that I noticed is that often the, the parties involved would argue with the policeman, and. Uh, you don't see that here. You don't see that here. <laughs> We don't argue with policemen here. <laughs> so in some sense, we're more authoritarian in in at least that
1: particular such kind of situation. I would, I, I would never take the risk of arguing with a policeman. <laughs> yeah, because you fear that the police will, will write something bad for you if you... Or put me in handcuffs. <laughs> but in China, my driver got into so many arguments
2: with policemen. He was an aggressive driver. He was always hitting things. Oh, no, and he I'm, was always arguing with other drivers Or with police okay that's how you learn your chinese (laughs) (laughs) anyway let's uh let's move switch gears a little bit and talk about some of your activities today because i think you're um involved right now in helping uh chinese companies do business in in the u.s often is that right yeah
0: yeah can can you help us frame a little bit if you have numbers etc on how big this opportunity how quickly is it happening you know, what are the size and, and scale of this? I think that would really help kind of frame this.
1: Oh, oh thank you, uh, Ken and Cheng Yi. I wish I have the chart in front of me. Uh, so I did a presentation in Stanford not long ago uh, mm-hmm. about, you know, not just about law, but also about the trend. Yeah. On m activities. You know, in 2016, uh, the Chinese um, outbound investment in the United States doubled. Uh, as compared to 2015. Obviously, the jury is still out for 2017. uh, You have a new administration, and and people are feeling a little bit uncertain, right, naturally uh, when you have a new, uh, you know, uh, direction in terms of overall regulatory posture. Uh, But I don't have the exact uh, dollar amount in my head right now but the progress has been pretty amazing. Uh, So I think back in 2013, 2014, the outbound investment from the United States into China completely outnumbered or or, or outdid uh, the number from Mm -hmm. uh, China. But then in 2015, I believe, uh, the number switched.
0: So we're talking about what, in the hundreds of billions, I assume?
1: Uh, Again, I have to go back to uh, the statistics. I I don't really remember, Yeah, it's it's in in the, you know, hundreds of billions, Uh, probably not trillions. Uh, You know, there have been some massive uh, investments in the United States, you know, in a few sectors, you know, real estate for example, uh, renewable energy, uh, resources, and uh, sometimes technology. Now, technology deals are really challenging because of national security review by a body called CFIUS, Committee on Foreign Investment into the United States, Uh, a committee of, you know, about a dozen agencies uh, hosted or chaired by the Department of Treasury. Uh, they are responsible for reviewing the national security uh, elements of a foreign investment into the United States. Yeah. And the filings uh, before CFIUS by Chinese companies uh, you know, are increasing every year. Yeah.
0: So yeah. what kind of deals are you involved in? And how is legal, how does legal come into play?
1: So I obviously cannot talk about sensitive uh, transactions. Uh, Or just the kind uh, of categories of? Yeah, so all I can say is, uh, you know, it varies. It can be, you know, life science. Uh, It can be uh, technology. Uh, It can be uh, real estate. Um, So you are involved in all three? Yeah.
2: Life science, technology, real estate. Yeah, just some examples.
1: Yeah. Uh, And and, and sometimes it can be, you know, corporate venture investments. Mm. Uh, You know, sometimes it can be, uh, you know, acquisition of uh, traditional M&A. But uh, you asked the question, you know, how important is legal in the whole uh, process? Legal is is extremely important. Uh, Increasingly, and and, and I take comfort in seeing that, uh, Chinese clients are getting more and more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. They're very uh, uh, global-minded. uh, they wanted to do things right, you know, they, and they, they are very business-minded. Uh, I- in my experience, uh, you know, politics or political motivations have not been any part of the equation from my Chinese client's perspective. They just wanted to make money. Yeah, yeah. They just wanted to have the synergy from a technology or resources perspective. They wanted to have the plan in the United States. They view United States as a very key market in the global picture of product rollout or marketing. Uh, they feel like if they wanted to go global and by the way, Chinese government has been encouraging these companies to go global. Uh, if they wanted to go global, without missing the chi- I mean U.S, they are missing a huge piece of the puzzle. So uh, they are very persistent, but they are, fras- they are very frustrated as well. Yeah. So and, and there's a huge misunderstanding sorry, uh, Changyi, between the United States and China. What, what do you mean by huge misunderstanding? So I think the political system in the United States tends to politicize uh, a lot of purely commercial moves uh, by the Chinese company. Uh, now, I'm not saying that, you know, they should not review the national security elements of, you know, uh, foreign investment into the United States. But um, I, I think investment from China gets an actual layer of scrutiny, if mm. you will. Sure. Uh, it is tougher to overcome the suspicion. Uh, you know, there's no burden the of proof in uh, the CFIUS review process. but De facto, voting approved is higher, if you will, yeah, yeah. for Chinese companies. Yeah,
0: what do you think about that, Ken? Do you think that additional layer of approval is merited?
1: Of, of scrutiny, yeah. Of scrutiny.
0: For Chinese companies? Oh,
1: that's a difficult question. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's a difficult question. Let me come back to that in a couple of minutes, because I think we ought to talk about that. But for the moment, let me stick with your question uh-huh. um, about... Uh, the reasons why, because when I talk to people um, and I talk to uh, Chinese companies and representatives of Chinese companies all the time that are bringing money to, or want to bring money to the U.S. to purchase or invest in technology, um, when I ask what what's motivating you, what is it you're trying to accomplish, I get a range of answers and I'm trying to figure out which ones, how you prioritize those answers, which ones are the most important? So some people say, I talk to SOEs, I talk to private equity firms, I talk to uh, venture capital firms, I talk to wealthy individuals. And when I say, why, why do you want to invest in the U.S.? Here are the answers that some people say, uh, especially the SOEs, say uh, Beijing wants us to. Uh, So encouragement from the government. I think you said that a minute ago. Another one is we want to diversify Mm -hmm. um, our assets. Uh, Why have them all tied up in just one place? Mm -hmm. Uh, We better go global for diversification. Other people say uh, returns. We want to pursue higher returns, and we feel that we can get them in some other markets. And then some people... Actually, say safety. They say you know you never know what's going to happen in China, so we'll put some of our investments in other places. It's a form of diversification, but it's not so much economic diversification, as it is, in a sense, it's um, uh, it's um, uh, a safety issue. It's almost a political diversification, Mm -hmm. I think. So I'm wondering, in your experience, how do you how do you rank those? Are, are some of them more important than others? Are some of them more representative than others?
0: Yeah, I, I, I would say in my- And actually, it, if I can add one more that mm-hmm. I've heard, mm-hmm. is about bringing the technology back to China mm-hmm. so that it could grow the business in China, not necessarily the e- economic returns in the US. So, so strategic. Yeah, strategic.
2: More strategic than yeah.
0: economic.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, would, I, I, would, I would think, you know, I mean, there are different uh, reasons behind every deal. Mm-hmm. But uh, in terms of, um, for example, the sensitive issue of political diversification or political safety, I, I frankly have not experienced that personally. Uh, you know, my clients have been almost completely based on their strategic goals. Mm-hmm. You know, market, this is our next market. We wanted to perceive as the market leader in this sector. So
0: we need in China or globally, globally or globally, in the U.S. Globally, globally. Okay. we mm-hmm. need to go
1: global. We need to have a global brand. If you are not in the United States, it is not global. And we cannot mm-hmm. grow organically because that would take many years. Mm. We wanted to acquire so that we have a foot in the door, you know, or we have our nose under the tank very quickly. Uh, so, commercial or technology or strategic, however you call it. But in terms of um, you know so-called safety diversification, uh, I heard people talking about it, Ken. Mm-hmm. uh but it's not too different from you know multinational companies in Silicon Valley parking their revenues overseas, mm-hmm. you know in tax haven jurisdictions, you know as you know trillions and trillions of dollars, you know. Uh, and, and through various structures, and that's what you know has been debated, you know, over the years. How to bring this money back to the United States? How do you lower the corporate income tax so that this money can return? Um, so, in a way, asset diversification, uh, you know, obviously is part of a logical commercial, you know, thinking process. But I think the overriding. Uh, motivation for the Chinese uh, outbound investment is, you know, the desire to take the next strategic step to go global, uh, to make money, uh, and as Ken said, I'm sorry, as uh, Chen Yi said, to bring maybe their management expertise, to to bring the marketing <coughs> know-how, to bring the technology back to headquarters as well.
0: So, given that these business people have been brought up in a legal system, to your words, are quite different from the U.S.'s, what's the biggest thing you have had to educate them on? Um, everything. Everything. Wow. Okay. Uh, All right.
1: You know, for example, if they say, uh, okay, Yabo, we have this deal that we need to finish, you know, today is March the 10th, and we need to get it get a term signed in uh, 20 days, and we need to get the due diligence done in 35 days, and we need to get the final agreement all signed in two months. I say this is almost like the roadside argument between the driver and the policeman. Try to get something done quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, In a deal setting, I always try to manage uh, the client's expectation. I said it's going to take longer. You know, we will do what we can to try to get things done quickly, but in terms of timeline management is the first thing that will educate my clients.
0: What, so why does it take longer in the U.S.?
1: Uh, it's not just the U.S. I think, you know, again, the Chinese companies, I wanted to say this is almost like only the beginning of Chinese companies trying to, you know, go out of China. to you know, to acquire, to do business, to sell, you know, to do everything else. So they're not very experienced. They're trying to learn, and they're a very good, humble learner. But then when you try trying to learn, it takes time. You know, simple things such as, for example, VC investment. So in Silicon Valley, we all use the National, also, national you know, Venture Capital Association templates hmm. for venture capital investments you know, we call these customary terms and people don't really argue over them. You know, the liquidation preference, the redemption and all those other terms. But the Chinese clients would just dissect every single sentence and try to understand what it means. And then argue back and forth with even us mm-hmm. that this is not fair. We need to change the terms. So, you know, so they're not familiar that, with the terms. Exactly. Okay. the. The, the, getting, getting over the learning curve, I kind think, kind takes time. Kind of and then due diligence, you know, they tend to, you know, for U.S. sophisticated clients, they just wanted you to highlight the so-called red flag issues, the major issues in your due diligence report. But for Chinese uh, clients, they want you to summarize everything that you see. So the lease agreement about this building, you know what are the uh, key terms? Expiration date, renewal terms. You know, you know, what are the terms about subleasing? You know, they they want to use to summarize everything uh, about this agreement. You know, what is the counterparty and what is the? Is there any most favored nation? You know, clause in the agreement. Uh, what is the termination basis? You know, to end the contract. They, they wanted to know everything, and they review everything very carefully. Um, and then the term sheet, as you know, the term sheet is not a letter of intent, it's not binding. But for Chinese uh, clients, nothing is not binding, everything is binding. They will lose face if they have to chan- go back and change the uh, term sheet. So they negotiate the term sheet very, very uh, carefully. Got it. Got uh, so everything takes time. Yeah. Let's go back to your question from before. Um, sure
2: What thing. was that? Say it again.
0: I can't well, remember. Uh, well, in terms of the extra layer of scrutiny.
2: Oh, the extra for layer of scrutiny. Chinese
0: companies investing.
2: <coughs> so I have a, a theory about that, and I want to test it out with Yavor. Uh, t- I'll tell you wh- why I think Chinese companies are subjected to an extra layer of scrutiny, and um, you tell me if, uh, what your opinion is. Uh, I actually think there are three different reasons for that. Um, One of them would be basically that uh, at certain levels, uh, China and America don't trust each other. And when you don't trust another person, you see things that may or may not be there. Mm. So if you and I don't trust each other, I'm going to interpret everything you do as being a potential threat. And you're gonna interpret everything I do as being a potential threat. The problem with that is that it escalates because the more I interpret you that way, the more I find evidence.
1: So, uh, Ken, I think um, you you have a very good observation, uh, and I agree th- with you for the most part. And I think the question of mistrust um, is there, mm. and I think this is one thing that I think the two systems would need to try to again bridge the gap, uh, and and through exchange I think we can you know uh, bridge the gap. I mean in the 80s when you traveled to China what you saw right? wow you know a sea of bicycles Mm -hmm. you know people with workers uniforms with Mao's uh, you know uniforms Uh, but you see uh, what you see in Shanghai today is not too different from what you see in San Francisco Mm. except that obviously you know you don't have as many uh, foreigners in uh, in Shanghai mm. uh, than, uh, you know, see the uh, Americans in San Francisco. Uh, so China is changing, but I think in terms of the political mutual distrust, it still lingers. Uh, and I think the two sides, we need to find a way to, you know, bring everything closer. Uh, otherwise, the businesses will suffer.
0: Yeah. Mm. so. This is an amazing conversation, but in the interest of time, I have one more question for you, which is how should American companies respond? All this money coming in, all these Chinese companies interested to doing deals, how should they think about the process?
1: So a few things from a legal perspective. uh, Number one, I think it takes uh, longer (laughs) to conclude a transaction with uh, a Chinese uh, potential uh, buyer or acquirer. Uh, not only because of the regulatory issues, but also because of the um, business, uh, again, you know, understanding and the the gap uh, in terms of the deal experience. Uh, So from a regulatory perspective, uh, you have the actual layer of national security view, right? And then you have to analyze whether or not the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. uh, analysis uh, would be applicable. Uh, And then, you know, from a business perspective, there are a lot of, you know, uh, negotiations that you would actually perhaps not see uh, in a purely domestic U.S. transaction. So, you need to be prepared for a longer negotiation period. Uh, And then the deal uncertainty, secondly, is probably higher uh, because of the national security review. Uh, so you probably need to think about, you know, a higher breakup fee, uh, you know, for the deal not to be concluded. Because if you sign the contract, made the announcement, there will be a lot of disruption uh, if the deal does not get closed. Uh, and then, uh, thirdly, I wanted to say that uh, you need to think about post-transaction integration a little bit more uh, carefully and in more detail than uh, basically a purely domestic U.S. transactions. So uh, integration can be very challenging uh, in a cultural setting where you know, the Chinese uh, buyer might not fully understand the culture in terms of employment, doing business, and management in the U.S.
0: Sure, got it. Well, thank you so much, Yapua, for an amazing conversation. And thank you for tuning in to another episode of China 411. See you in the future. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank Thank you. you.